G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas and at the risk of continuing to kick a hornet's nest fruitlessly, I have to have faith, retain faith in those of you who find it useful to continue wrestling with ideas uh, in a as non-partisan and fact-based a way as possible. So I've been thinking a lot about Gaza and Palestine and Israel, and I've been reading a lot about Gaza and Palestine and Israel, and I've come across a couple of articles recently, and I've written one indeed, that have helped me gain some new perspective that I haven't been getting from the mainstream media that I hope you might find valuable. The first are reports which have gone really unreported in Australia of uh, a video, a movie that was screened to international journalists by the Israeli Defence Force earlier this week. And it was a video, 43 minutes long, of raw footage from Hamas's body cams of the terrorist attack. So before we put into context the grand geopolitical uh, battles that are underway in the Middle East, I think it's worth just noticing the inciting incident because we're forgetting about it. Many people aren't even aware of it. Many people, including prominent journalists, have claimed that many of the accusations that were made about Hamas's behaviour on October 7th were bullshit, and that that's just Israeli propaganda. So the Israelis gathered together the body cam footage and played it for international journalists. They haven't released it publicly for obvious reasons. They don't want to re-traumatise the families of the victims. Graham Wood is a brilliant and impartial journalist. He's not a cheerleader for uh, Israel. He's uh, one of the most informed authorities on Islamist jihadism and uh, has been wrote a number of great pieces during the aftermath of 9-11 and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He knows this region better than anybody. And in the Atlantic, he relates his experience of watching these videos with other international journalists. His article is entitled A Record of Pure Predatory Sadism. I recommend it. It's tough reading. He writes, I certainly hope I never see any of this footage again. And I'll quote from him. Men, women and children are shot, blown up, hunted, tortured, burned, and generally murdered in any horrible manner you could predict and some that you might not. The terrorists surround a Thai man, a man from Thailand, that is, who they've shot in the gut and then bicker about what to do next. And Graham writes about 30,000 Thais live in Israel. Many of them are farm workers. Give me a knife, one Hamas terrorist shouts. Instead, he finds a garden hoe and he swings at the man's throat, taking thwack after thwack. Graham writes, The audience gasped. I heard someone heave a little at another scene, this one showing a father and his young sons surprised in their pyjamas. A terrorist throws a grenade into their hiding place and the father is killed. The boys are covered in blood and one appears to have lost an eye. They go to their kitchen and cry for their mother. One of the boys howls, Why am I alive? And Daddy, Daddy. One says, I think we're going to die. The terrorist who killed their father comes in and while they weep, he raids their fridge. Water, water, he says. The spokesman was unable to say whether the children survived. 
Graham Wood goes on to reflect on these videos. It's kind of like the webcam from the Christchurch shooter, where the shoe was on the other foot, if there are any feet in this morass, in the sense that he was a white supremacist targeting Muslims. And so what does Israel do about that now? How many innocent Gazans will be caught up in Israel's response? My heart breaks for the innocent people in Gaza, betrayed by so many people, the Israelis, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, the Arab world. But a really interesting point was made by Matt Iglesias in his substack, which is called Slow Boring, which I wholeheartedly recommend, where he talks about the right of return. That's the idea that Palestinians should have the ability to go back to Israel and take back the homes that they were kicked out of in 1948. He says, we need to understand how widespread that expectation is across the Arab world and even among Western human rights campaigners. He quotes from Amnesty International, which says, There can be no lasting solution to the Palestinian refugee crisis until Israel respects Palestinians' refugees right, Palestinian refugees' right to return. In the meantime, this is uh, quoting from Philip Luther, who's Amnesty International's research and advocacy director for the Middle East and North Africa, In the meantime, Lebanese and Jordanian authorities must do everything in their power to minimise the suffering of Palestinian refugees by repealing discriminatory laws and removing obstacles blocking refugees' access to employment and essential services. And then he goes on to say there are currently more than 5.2 million registered Palestinian refugees. The vast majority live in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria and the occupied Palestinian territories. Israel has failed to recognise their right under international law to return to homes where they or their families once lived in Israel or the occupied Palestinian territories. At the same time, they've never received compensation for the loss of their land and property. So let's just set aside the question of whether or not we hold any other colonial societies, and I've used those, that word in, square, in scare quotes and quotation marks, responsible for compensating, let alone giving back the land of people who they pushed out is that an expectation that we hold of the United States and Canada towards Native Americans? Is it an expectation that we hold of Australians towards First Nations people, that they should be able to come and take your house because they used to be here? Is it not because it was just a long time ago, a longer time ago? Is it not a matter of principle, but just time? Like if the Israelis just wait 200 years, will people no longer think that that's a legitimate claim? Because we really can't talk about the Palestinian issue unless we talk about whether or not it's legitimate for Palestinians to take over the land that they were on when Israel was created in 1948. Let me quote from Matt Iglesias here. He says, You might think Arab public opinion is extremely sympathetic to Palestinians and eager to see Arab governments help Palestinians have better lives. Were that true... You might expect to see Egypt opening its doors to refugees fleeing the carnage in Gaza. Of course, that would be a logistical and economic burden on Egypt, but countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates are right there and could help out with money. You can, of course, Matt writes, 
understand from general immigration policies why Egypt might not want to do this and why the richer Arab states might not want to help out with money. Generally speaking, you should do stuff to help foreigners is a hard sell in politics. But Matt writes, what's peculiar about the Palestinian issue, though, is that this normal level of indifference to the welfare of foreigners coexists with what we're told is a profound level of preoccupation with their fate, meaning the Palestinian fate. The moment you talk about Palestine across the Arab world, it inflames everybody. The Arab street explodes. They claim to care very much about their Palestinian brothers and sisters. But the practical things that they could do, like give work permits, let alone citizenship, to the Palestinians who are living in Jordan, who are living in Lebanon, they don't do. Now, the more conspiratorially minded people might say, well, they don't do it because they like having the Palestinian issue. The leaders, the corrupt leaders, like having a Palestinian issue as something that they can rally the Arab street around. It's nice to have an enemy. It's convenient to hate Israel. You don't actually want to make the Palestinian situation worse because it serves your narrow political interests. But there's also a a more strategic and less cynical reason for not giving Palestinians rights for Arab countries not giving Palestinians rights, which is they and many Western human rights organisations like Amnesty International think that to do so would remove the pressure off Israel to find a lasting solution. And that lasting solution is inextricably bound up with the right of Palestinians to return to Israel. That is the end of Israel as a Jewish state. Back to Matt Iglesias. He writes... Note that Amnesty sort of glossed over the fact that Palestinian refugees living in Jordan and Lebanon lack full access to employment rights and social services. And in this context, Palestinian refugees does not necessarily mean someone who fled from settler violence six weeks ago. If your great-grandparents were kicked out of their village when they were kids and fled to a refugee camp in Lebanon and then had children in the 1950s, who had kids in the 1980s, who had you in the 2010s, then you are still not a citizen of Lebanon. You are a stateless Palestinian refugee. And the Palestinian cause, writes Matt, means fighting for your right to return to that village, not fighting for your right to enjoy citizenship in the country where you and your parents and your grandparents were born. To be clear, writes Matt, this is a population of a few hundred thousand people out of millions of refugees, but the fact that pro-Palestinian advocacy generally doesn't mean advocating for the right of people born in Lebanon or Jordan to become citizens of those countries is relevant to understanding the broader dynamics. This is fascinating to me because it sort of reveals the fundamental audacity of the claim not just of Palestinians, not just of Arab governments, not just of Iran, but of Western human rights organisations and pro-Palestinian activists. Again, my heart goes out to the Palestinians. It's not really their fault. It's certainly not the the fault of a five-year-old Palestinian child who will be killed by an Israeli strike that this situation exists. But the situation partly exists because justice for Palestinians does not in the current context mean making the lives of Palestinian people better. 
It means making the lives of Palestinian people worse in order to put pressure on Israel to resolve the situation once and for all. Matt imagines a hypothetical person. He says, imagine a kind of guy who runs around advocating for the following ideas. One, Egypt should open the borders with Gaza and allow unarmed people who can pass some kind of background check to leave the quote-unquote open-air prison, which is what we call Gaza, and enjoy life in a neighbouring Arab state. Proposal two. Lebanon, Jordan and other countries should either grant birthright citizenship to the descendants of Palestinian refugees who live in their countries, or at a minimum, create an easy naturalisation process. Birthright citizenship means you become a citizen if you are born in that country, which does not apply to Palestinian refugees who are living in Lebanon and Jordan. They are still stateless. Even if they were born there, their parents were born there, their grandparents were born there. Lebanon and Jordan says, you're not ours, you're Palestinian. Proposal three of this imaginary person who Mataglacius is inventing. The Gulf states, which currently rely heavily on foreign labour, should tilt away from their current reliance on workers from Africa and South Asia and give more visas to Palestinians. Here's what's interesting. Matt says, you don't actually need to imagine that guy, though, because I've met guys like that, and they're either right-wing Israelis or Jewish Republicans in the United States. Clearly, he writes, Palestinians would be much better off, on average, if this agenda were implemented. That is, if Egypt opens the borders with Gaza and allows Gazans in to enjoy life in Egypt, if Lebanon and Jordan granted citizenship or allowed Palestinian refugees to become citizens of Lebanon and Jordan, and if the Gulf states allowed Palestinians to come in as foreign labourers. Clearly that would benefit Palestinians. But Matt writes, not only is this not a strategy of the Palestinian cause, advocating for it would be seen as incredibly hostile to the Palestinian cause. Why? The fear is that lots of Palestinians would welcome the opportunity to emigrate. It's not fun living in the West Bank. It's even less fun living in Gaza. This is me talking now, not Matt. And if other Arab states, let alone Western countries, were more welcoming to Palestinian emigrants, plenty of them might choose that option. And as a result, they would never be allowed to return. The claim is that Israel would never let them back in. But Matt makes the point, you could construe basically any refugee situation in that way. He writes, during the Syrian civil war, You could have argued that urging European countries to accept Syrian refugees should be understood as a form of complicity with the Assad regime. Letting Ukrainian women and children flee the war zone for safety in NATO states could be construed as a form of complicity with Putin's invasion and desire to russify eastern Ukraine. The construction of narratives, writes Matt, is a discursive process that can go in different directions. But whatever you think about the issue on the merits, it's important to understand that this is the way the Palestinian cause has been constructed. That's somewhat eye-opening to me. It's eye-opening that Palestinian suffering is construed by pro-Palestinian activists, not necessarily Palestinian people, 
but by pro-Palestinian activists, by Hamas, by Western human rights organisations and by the Arab street as well as Arab leaders, Palestinian suffering is seen as indispensable to the overarching cause of Palestinian self-government and therefore the actual interests, the day-to-day interests of alleviating the suffering of Palestinians is regarded as inimical to long-term Palestinian interests. In other words, if you are pro-Palestinian, you are expected to advocate for the immiseration of Palestinians now so that Israel has to do something in the long term about the problem. And if you argue for policies that would help Palestinians right now, that's regarded as being anti-Palestinian because you're alleviating the pressure, the pressure cooker, that is, will supposedly someday force Israel to do what? What exactly? Create a state, a full state, right next to it after what just happened on October 7th? So that's the right of return issue. The second reason why that's interesting, apart from highlighting that kind of hypocritical uh, position of many people in the West who are most agitated about human rights in Gaza rather than the calamity of what happened to Israel on October 7th. The second point is just to understand the gulf between what pro-Palestinian, the pro-Palestinian movement is asking for and what the Israelis can reasonably give. They're really not generally asking for, and Hamas is certainly not asking for, a free state alongside Israel, they're asking for the right of Palestinians to go back to what they regard as Palestine. They basically don't want any Jews in the Middle East. And if you're not scrupulously clear about what you mean by a free Palestine, you can find yourself arguing for an impossibility. You are just not going to push the the nuclear-armed Jews into the sea and kill them all, not without destroying the world in the process. So it would be helpful if people who care for Palestinians were able to talk about what they actually want to happen to improve the lives of Palestinians right now, rather than using Palestinians as a pawn in a longer-term geostrategic game, and also to split apart the question of what is tolerable as a state for Palestinians versus the right of return, which even Amnesty International says is fundamental, the right of return that no one else in the world accepts for their indigenous populations and certainly won't be accepted by a population which has millennia-long ties to the land as the Jews do. Because the moment you start talking about whether or not someone whose grandparents were evicted in 1948 should have a right to your house... The question of whether or not your great-great-great-great-grandparents who were there centuries ago or stretching all the way back to the kingdom of King David in 1000 BC also have some right to the land. So let's... I think it would be useful going forward to think about the right of return as a a specific, boxed-off, quarantined issue. And, and, and in that, alongside that issue is the whole question of the, what we mean by the future of a free Palestine. And then in another bucket, the well-being of Palestinian human beings who exist on the planet right now. Because those two, those two things are very different. To care about the latter 
is is treated by pro-Palestinian, by quote-unquote pro-Palestinian activists as being a betrayal of the former. In other words, caring about the lives of Palestinians right now in very practical ways is regarded as being a betrayal of the long-term future of a free Palestine if a free Palestine is construed as being Palestine all the way from the sea uh, to the mountains. In other words, no Jews, or Jews as a minority in some fundamentally Palestinian state. Lastly, I wrote a piece about this. Um, I sent it out on my Substack. If you're a subscriber, you will have read it, hopefully. If not, I'd just like to read it out, and I hope you enjoy it. It's called It's Not About Israel, It's About Us. And I wrote, I've recently tried to inject some nuance into the catastrophe in Gaza and Israel on radio and on my podcast, no sooner does the syllable ga slip from my lips than the comments start pouring in. How do you feel about Gazan babies being murdered? The listeners don't need to add the Jew part out loud. The images out of Gaza are utterly heartbreaking. Emotions are raw on both sides. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My father was born in a refugee camp during World War II before coming to Australia by boat. They wanted justice for Arabs. They would have been appalled by the failure of right-wing Israeli governments to pursue peace. It's unsustainable and unethical to build settlements on another people's land and to condemn millions to rot in squalid open-air refugee camps in perpetuity. But let's be clear about what happened two weeks ago. Southern Israel is not populated by right-wing settlers who oppose peace, not that it would justify Hamas's atrocities if it were. It's populated largely by left-wing peaceniks on Kibbutzim. It's a hippy-dippy part of the country. The largest group of victims were kids in their early 20s dancing at an all-night outdoor peace rave. Terrorists with body cams swarmed in, the Christchurch shooter en masse. They shot up kindergartens executed babies, beheaded half-dead soldiers, dragged old ladies bleeding from their genitals through cheering crowds. Some of the young concert-goers who weren't gunned down found shelter. Hamas rolled grenades into their midst, writhing bodies with their limbs ripped off. The body cam footage has been verified by international journalists. If you find yourself responding to these facts with a knee-jerk, but what about Gaza? Then you need your humanity checked. This isn't a game of who has the most corpses wins. It's lose-lose. And it's deeply depressing that our reaction as a nation seems to be to refract the events into our pre-existing moral certainties, grievance scorecards and whataboutisms. Gazans have been betrayed by Hamas by Israel, by Egypt, by Jordan, by the Arab world. But the only people who are expected to answer for their plight are Jews. We don't hold Iranian Australians responsible for the crimes of Hezbollah. We don't expect them to renounce the mullahs of Tehran. We don't place the crimes of the Chinese Communist Party at the feet of Chinese Australians. We don't argue that China's barbarism against the Uyghurs negates the Chinese people's right to a state. But the Jews, well, the Jews are different. They're not a real people, are they? Except when they're evil puppeteers. Either way, they have some explaining to do. 
They always do. The underlying fury at Israel is not about settlements or Gaza. It's about whether Jews are a pain in the ass. It's about whether Israel should really exist at all, whether it's a fundamentally illegitimate project, a colonising power. Look, you may think Israel is a misbegotten venture. You may think it was wrong to ship Jews back to that part of the world, steamrolling the interests of many people who were living there at the time. But Israel was not a colonial project, not like the British Empire or the Spanish conquistadors or the Dutch in the East Indies. Jews are a tiny population, 16 million people globally, who were never accepted into any society they've ever lived in. They were never allowed to join the professional classes. They couldn't get mainstream educations. They couldn't join the elite. After being hounded and slaughtered and excluded from every other place, they were allowed in 1948 to self-govern the land that King David ruled in 1000 BC. There's a laudable instinct in Western democracies to trust our post-colonial guilt. Given the barbarous history of colonisation, we're biased towards assuming that brown-skinned poor people are usually in the right while whiter-skinned people who speak good English and wear fancy suits are usually the oppressors. In the case of Israel, it's nonsense. Think about what an acknowledgement of country, a land acknowledgement, is. It's a recognition that regardless of whatever has happened in the past few hundred years, having ancestors who lived here thousands of years ago counts for something. If anyone was doing welcomes to country in the Middle East, it'd be Jews. To repeat, this doesn't justify West Bank settlements. It doesn't justify the abysmal treatment of Palestinians. But let's cut the nonsense about colonialism. There really, truly are two people with legitimate claims to Israel-Palestine. Yet only one side of the conflict agrees with this. There are about 30 times as many Arabs in the world as Jews. If the former put down their weapons, there could be peace. If the latter did, there would be no Jews left in the Middle East. How long will the experiment of Jewish self-government last? How successful do Hamas, the Taliban, Hezbollah and Iran have to get for Australia's well-meaning anti-Israelites to reject an Islamist death cult as vocally as they reject a Jewish state? My father now has Alzheimer's, and recently moved into a Jewish aged care home. The nursing home hired armed guards last week, in case some glassy-eyed devotee enacts Allah's will by slaughtering as many elderly Sydney Jews as he can. My friend's daughter goes to a Jewish school in Sydney. She worries about her little girl waiting at a bus stop, wearing that school uniform, a uniform as distinctive as a yellow Star of David embroidered on her chest. Jewish civilians are collateral damage everywhere always. They are the top target of hate crimes in Australia, in the United States, and elsewhere. Sydney's mosques, incidentally, do not feel the need to arm themselves against homicidal Jews. So, yes, let us weep for Gazans, but let us not lose sight of ourselves, of our shared Australian humanity. My dad was born 80 years ago 
amid the cinders of flaming Jewish flesh. He will die again, protected by armed guards. A full circle, a timeless trap, the oldest hatred. But, 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 Gazan babies, Israel deserves it, Jews are the oppressors, this time is different. Yeah, when it comes to Jew hatred, this time is always different, isn't it? It always has been. So that's that. God bless. Be strong. Love each other. See you next time. Thank you.